Good morning, Tapestry. Uh, welcome to yet another week um, of our online services. I hope you are enjoying, um, for those of you who are down here in Savannah, I hope you're enjoying the wonderful August humidity um, that we are having. I, I heard somebody uh, yesterday describe the air as um, air that you can wear. Um, and that, <laughs> and that's, that's pretty true as uh, I'm immediately wet wearing the air when I go outside. But um, <clears throat> fall's coming, so that's my hope for that. Um, we are finishing up this series today. Uh, and the bottom line of everything we've gone through so far up to this point, the first four weeks is this, is that, that when something um, grabs the attention of the nation and God has something to say about it, uh, then we need to talk about it. And so we've gotten ourselves into a little bit of uh, political discussions over the last several weeks. Um, and we've been looking at um, different things that God would have us to do if we are going to, as a nation, move forward from all of the laundry list of things that we are facing as a nation um, together in this really weird year. Um, and, and if we as the church and as Christians are able to do some of the, the foundational things that God has asked of us, um, th that Jesus taught, th then we would find that way forward. And, and, and that way forward would begin in such a way that, that people watching and, and seeing it happen, both within our nation and outside our nation, would see it. And, and it would point to God. And... and We've talked about things so far, like taking a, a, a fearless moral inventory, looking at yourself before you start looking at others is the problem. Um, we've talked about putting people uh, into office who are people of integrity. Doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're voting on, but put people of integrity in office. Um, we, we talked about admitting our dependence upon God if we're going to find um, a way forward out of everything that we're facing right now. Um, admitting dependence on God. And so that kind of brings us up to where we're at today. As we're going to wrap up this series. Um, and as we wrap up this series, uh, I want to look at something that, that happened as Jesus was kind of wrapping up his ministry. He, he was, it was coming to an end and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus knew that this was going to be his last trip into Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to be arrested um, and crucified. So he decides um, th this is the last opportunity for me to get the guys all around me here to get them up to speed because I'm getting ready to hand this entire thing off to them. And the entire plan, the entire future of the church depends on if these guys can handle it, right? And so he decides he can get up to speed. And up to this point, Jesus had been really popular and crowds had followed him and people would come from far away just to see him if they heard rumor that he was in a certain town um, or not. And so by extension, the disciples having been close to Jesus, they were popular as well, right? And, and they, were feeling, they were feeling like rock stars, like 
they, people would see them, see their proximity to Jesus, see that there was something special about the relationship between them. And they were feeling good about it. So Jesus knows that he needs to give these guys a dose of reality to get them from what they're feeling being around popular Jesus to what's getting ready to happen with his crucifixion um, and then him leaving and it being all in them and knowing what they were going to face once they took over the reins of the entire thing. So he says this, he says, listen, guys, when we get to Jerusalem, when, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be mocked. Uh, I'm going to be beaten. I, I'm going to, and I'm going to be put to death. He says this right, right to them, right to them. And, and, he, and he says it in graphic terms. He's not, there's no ambiguity about what's going on. And they aren't listening. They, they aren't listening. So, so as he says it, so he says it again, he tells them again, guys, I, I'm, get, I'm getting ready to die. And again, they, they just aren't paying attention. F finally, James and John, they kind of get Jesus off to the side by himself. And they say this, they say, hey, Jesus, sorry to hear about that. I'm getting arrested and beaten, crucified things. Sorry, sorry about all of that. But listen, when you become king, right? When you become king, and then they launch into this entire other conversation, right? They say, sorry about the beatings. That's going to be tough. But when you finally are on the throne of the nation of Israel, can we, sit on your left and on your right. And, and this is probably one of the most insensitive things in all of the New Testament. Jesus had just laid out what was going to happen to him and they were worried about their positions of power. They were worried about their proximity to the person who held the ultimate power in the land. Well, the other disciples, they, they kind of see what's going on and they get really upset about it and they get in on it. And there the whole argument breaks out amongst them over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus once he takes the throne, right? And they're arguing it and they're arguing it and they're arguing it. And, and they have this right after Jesus just finished telling them, guys, I'm going to be killed. So Jesus kind of, to put a halt to the whole thing. He kind of puts them all in time out under a tree. Sit there. I don't want to hear it. Zip it. Uh, some of you parents may know what Jesus was feeling as you've had kids home from school since March and the house is feeling small and they're just, and it's not even that they're being bad, right? They're just, and you're just zip it. Just quiet, sit down, stay there. I don't want to hear you. I'm sure most of you parents have had that experience, but, but he kind of puts them out in time out under a tree and is like, okay, guys, I'm going to tell you this one more time. You know how Gentile rulers, when they, when they get power, you know how they kind of lord it over people and use it against people, right? Make them, make them serve them with that power that they have right? Where, where, where they leverage it to benefit themselves. And the guys are listening to this and they're thinking like, yeah, we know. That's why, that's exactly why we want positions of power, right? It's great. 
And it would be great to have that kind of power. Jesus says, okay, uh, guys, I'm not sure you're paying attention to what I'm saying. But that, uh, and, and they're like, yeah, but Jesus, come on. That's why we hang out with you. I mean, yeah, you got some great teachings and, you know, the miracles were awesome. But I mean, like the power, the influence that we get, the power, that's. And one day, Jesus, when you're king, we want to be your guys. We want to have that power. And John, he's, he's sitting over the side. He's like, yes, and I'm going to be the closest one. Which is something John would say as he labeled himself the one that Jesus loves in his <laughs> writings. And Jesus says, okay, no, guys, listen. You know how the Gentile rulers, they lord their power over people? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so with you. Not so with you. Jesus, it's fine to want to be great. That's fine. It's fine to want to be in charge. It's fine to want to be a ruler. It's fine to want to have authority. But guys, the day comes that you actually have position and authority. You will not handle it the way other rulers have handled it. You would better not leverage it the way that you've seen other leaders leverage it. Now, a term that has been thrown around to describe um, this current generation of young people entering into adulthood, like 18 to 30 years old, um, the term that I've heard used to describe them more than any other is the term entitled. And many parents of children in that age range may think, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. They always seem to want the latest and the greatest and the shiniest and the newest things available, regardless of uh, any of the mitigating circumstances surrounding their life or their finances. Um, but I don't think it's just 18 to 30 year olds that struggle with that. I, 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 think, I think the entire nation, I think the entire United States of America can be described by the word entitled. Um, now, I, I could give the definition for the word entitled, but I, I don't think that would help. So let me describe what it is that I mean. Um, we at Tapestry, we used to have an Easter egg hunt uh, here at the YMCA. And um, it, did, it, did, it did pretty good, drew, drew quite a few people. Um, you know, we had kids of all ages and all sizes and um, it was kind of exciting. But, but what would happen is, is we put all these eggs out in the field and the big kids like would hog all the eggs and push the little kids out of the way and just like mine, 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 mine. And we'd collect them all up. And then, then at the end, they'd have like 12 pounds of eggs in a, you know, in a bag. And, and they were proud of themselves for having collected all of the eggs. And the big kids, they felt entitled to those eggs because they went through the effort to pick up and collect all of those eggs. And then the parents of the little kids who are crying and, and they, they start complaining and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. My kid is entitled to some of those eggs. I mean, they're little, right? We waited in line for this to happen. You know, we go to this church. It should be even, like the eggs should be split fairly. And there's this big like entitlement war that broke out. And it became such an issue that eventually we just stopped having the Easter egg hunt um, because everyone felt so entitled to the whole thing that it just kind of started to get ugly. Um, 
perhaps you can't necessarily relate to that. Let, let me, let me, let me try again. Let me try again this way. Um, it's like when there's the after Thanksgiving sales, you know, and, and there's a, there's a $299 like whatever giant size plasma television at Best Buy, but there's only five of them. And there's like 1200 people in line, right? And if you get one, you know, that's great. It worked out for you and you know, it's yours. But if you didn't, it's not fair. And you feel entitled to one as well. I, I was, you know, I was here early. I, I had to leave to use the bathroom. And right when I was gone, that's when you opened the door. And you know, th that's not fair. And entitlement wars break out. I mean, you wanna, you wanna spend some time realizing um, how not great some of our culture is? Just spend some time watching videos of Black Friday brawls in stores. It's ugly. And it's all about entitlement, right? Now imagine Jesus walking in the middle of all of those kind of things, people fighting it out over, you know, TVs or clothes or even stranger, him showing up at an Easter egg hunt and being like, really? So I rose from the dead and, and you hide eggs? You're arguing and you're fighting and you're crying over eggs? Now, how, how would... How would he sort all that out, right? If Jesus showed up in the middle of that or the Black Friday fights or whatever, how, how would he, you know, would he, would he cut the TV in half like Solomon and be like, here, you get half and you get half of a TV. Like, would he be fair about it? How, how would he make it fair? If he, were to, if he were to be put into the middle of one of those entitlement arguments, like what would Jesus do? Well, the, the New Testament models this for us. Right, and, and if you're a Christian, this is huge. And this principle that we're gonna look at is key to finding a way forward as a nation. Um, if you aren't a Christian, uh, you can kind of pick whichever parts of this you like or don't like. But if you're a Christian, Jesus could not be more clear. He, he would walk into every single entitlement environment and when we say, Jesus, okay, you're smart, you, you figure it out, he would say this, the question isn't, what are you entitled to? That's not the question. The question is, what will you do with what you are entitled to? What will you do? Oh, okay, Jesus, but, but that doesn't help me, right? I, Jesus, I want you to tell me what I'm entitled to, what I deserve, what is mine. And Jesus would say, eh, you work that out amongst yourselves. Have an election, vote, I don't know, figure out who gets what. But once you've done that, invite me into the conversation. But I'm going to ask you one question. Now that you have what you feel you are entitled to, what you think is rightfully yours, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? And if we as Christians could get this right, if we as Christians could get the answer to that question right, it would change the country. It would change the reputation of the church in this country.
It would, it would bring the church out of the margins of society and put it front and center once again. And, and this isn't something extreme. This is basic, basic Christian teaching. And people are always wanting to put Jesus on the left or the right or make sure that Jesus is on their side. But anytime that happened to Jesus when he was walking on the earth, he'd be like, yeah, I'm not gonna take your sides. I, I'm gonna make my own side. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. I came to make a new way. You are all wrong, Jesus would say. You are all wrong. The question is, what are you going to do with what you are so sure that you are entitled to? And if you answer that question correctly, the world changes. The world changes. It's why in the first century, Christians who had nothing were able to within 300 years topple the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, not with an army, but through their understanding of the principle that we're going to discuss today. Jesus modeled this principle in the most extreme way. It was just hours before he would be arrested. And they've arrived in Jerusalem, him and the guys, and they've settled down and they're getting ready to celebrate Passover, which Passover is the, the celebration of God delivering the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And it was the largest celebration in the Jewish culture. And in this time together, as they're getting ready to share this meal and celebrate, Something extraordinary happens. Here's the story. John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus knew this was the end. And this is the setup for the next section of the Jesus story. And this is where the story gets rich. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And if you know the whole story of Judas, which many of you do, that whole thing is already in process and is happening. And then John tells us this. Jesus knew. Now, that's an interesting little phrase. It's as if John is kind of pausing in the story and telling us that in some way it had dawned on Jesus. That he, he had some kind of epiphany or, or, or something that he already knew just kind of rose to the surface of his consciousness. And he somehow became more aware of something that he was already aware of. And, and I don't think John is saying that, that he learned anything in this moment, but it was as if he was saying that there was something that happened during this meal that brought it into laser focus for Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power or his authority and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In other words, in this moment, sitting around this table with his disciples, knowing his ministry was coming to an end. Jesus is overwhelmed with the sense that God the Father had put every single thing under his authority. 
He, he, Jesus is not just the most powerful person in the room. He's the most powerful person in the city. He's the most powerful person in the nation. He is the most powerful person in the world. So the question to be asked is this, is, so, so what do you do? What do you do when it dawns on you that God has given you all power? And right down the street are the people who at that very moment are plotting your death. Well, what do you do? What do you do when you're the most powerful person alive? And the one who has betrayed you and is getting ready to, to hand you over for 30 pieces of silver is sitting just a few seats away from you. What do you do when you have all power? What's your next move? When you've been given by God all the power in the world, and this may be one of the most important words written in all of the New Testament. He knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. Everything was under his power. So. Because that, this little word, so, is so powerful because it, it, it's the hinge. It's the hinge between understanding the power that he holds and then what he does next. So. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and he was a rabbi. He, he had a robe that he wore on the outside of his regular clothing. That was a symbol of that authority of being a rabbi. That, that was a tremendous position in Jewish culture. When he entered a city, people would know that he was a rabbi and that respect was due him based on that robe that he wore. And so he gets up in the middle, meal, middle of the meal, takes off the robe that represents that power, that authority, and I'm sure that as that was happening, that not a word was spoken around that table. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And when he did that, at that moment, I'm sure that there were many different emotions that were being felt around that table as they realized what it was that Jesus was getting ready to do by taking off the robe and wrapping the towel around him. He had gone from rabbi to servant. And some of the guys were probably thinking, oh, I should have done this. That should have been me. I should have planned this. I, I, I should have arranged for someone to come and serve us and, and to do this. And at least one of the guys sitting around the table had the thought of, I am not going to let him do this, right? Do you know what your savior did in the moment that he was acutely aware that God had given him all power and all authority? He took the form of a servant. Check this out. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, he said, seriously, you are going to wash my feet? I, I, I've seen those hands heal people just by touching them. 
and you expect me to let those hands wash my feet? I've seen you raise people from the dead with those hands and you think I am going to let them touch my feet? I don't think so, Jesus. But Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. In other words, you think I am simply doing um, what you think you should have hired someone to do or what you think I want you to do, or or just what is customary. But it is way bigger than that. And this is powerful. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. So in that moment, there is this visual. Jesus, the rabbi, teacher, taking off the garb of the rabbi, putting on the garb of a servant, and then putting back on the robe of authority and no one is eating, no one is drinking, no one is saying a word around the table. And then he asks them this question. Do you understand what I have done for you? And nobody answers (laughs) because they knew they would answer wrong. Some of them were probably thinking, well, no, we don't understand because you just said, we don't know what you're doing. We'll understand later, right? And we've been around long enough to know that we rarely know what's going on, Jesus. (laughs) Like, yeah, we don't know. So Jesus tells them, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. At any moment that it ever dawns on you that you are entitled, Jesus says, I've set an example for what you should do with that entitlement. If you ever wonder, what should I do with this entitlement of time? this entitlement of money, this entitlement of influence, this entitlement of of power, this entitlement of possessions. If you ever wonder what you should do, Jesus says, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Christians, listen. If you are a follower of Jesus, These are our marching orders. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand this. Jesus could not have been more clear. The question is not, what are you entitled to? The question facing the nation in so many different arenas right now is not who is entitled to what. The question is, what will we as believers, as followers of Jesus, do with the things that we are entitled to? And Jesus says, I've set an example, an example that goes beyond just teaching, right? Here's what you do. You look for a way to leverage what you are entitled to for the sake of those who are less entitled than you. That's what you're to do. And listen, that should be the reputation of our church in this community. 
It should be the reputation of the church in the nation and in the world. Right? When people think church, they should think, you know, I may not believe what they believe, but boy, am I glad they're there. Right? I, I may not buy into all the Jesus stuff, but, uh, but man, I kind of hope my kid marries a Christian. I, I, I want to hire Christians. I want to work for Christians. That's what people should think. Spoiler alert, it's not what people think about Christians right now. When, when people think of the church and of Christians, they should say, I may not embrace their theology, but I'll tell you what, the more you give them, the more you give those people, the more they invest it in the people around them. The more that you give them and the more that they have, the more they leverage that to raise the others who are around them. Listen, there is nothing better than a rich Christian and I mean an actual Christian, not a rich Christian who's going to be flying around on their private jets and floating around on their yachts. I'm talking about a rich Christian who uses what he is entitled to, what he has, what she has, to leverage that, to lift others around them. Jesus keeps going. He says, very truly, I tell you, Servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed, and this is so key, if you do them. Not if you believe them, not if you study them, not if you preach them, not if you exegete them, not if you declare them from the mountaintops. You will be blessed. Your community around you will be blessed. Your nation will be blessed if you do these things. If you ask the question, what should I do with what I am entitled to? and you're open to an actual answer and you act accordingly, you will be blessed. And this nation will find a way forward if that is the attitude of those who claim to be followers of Jesus. So the way forward begins when we examine ourselves and do a fearless moral inventory, when we recognize the wrong inside of us, when we choose to put people in positions of leadership who are people of integrity and are not in it for themselves, when we admit that we are dependent upon God, that we don't have the ability to do this on our own. And when we choose to leverage what we have and what we are entitled to for the benefit of those who are less entitled, if we do those things, can you imagine the difference that there would be in both the conversation and the actions 
of our nation. If the more entitled you were, the more apt you were to do something for those who are less entitled. What a concept in our culture. What a concept. But listen, that, all of those things that we've talked about in this series, you put those things together. That is how our nation moves forward from all of the things that are tearing it apart right now. And that is how by Christians, by followers of Christ doing all of those things, that is how we go from the rest of the world watching in amazement as the United States of America just falls apart to us coming together as a nation and moving forward and allowing wounds to heal. And in the process, it all pointing to the glory of God. But none of it happens just by us knowing these things. We must do them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I don't know that there's a more telling test of if a person is actually a follower of Christ than what they do with what they are entitled to and what they have been given. And Lord, I pray that as individuals, as a church, as the collective church of this nation, that we become known for leveraging what we've been given, leverage what we are entitled to for those who are less entitled. And that it lifts up our nation around us and it points attention back to you. God, it is such a powerful thing to use what we have for the benefit of those who have less. Lord, let us take your example of making yourself into a servant serious and let us serve those around us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for pointing us in the right direction. Lord, let us come together as Christians and begin to do the things that will help this nation move forward. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Look forward to next week as we begin a brand new series. Be safe.